It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. China's been working on a central bank digital currency for some time, but now word comes that they may have it up and running as early as the end of the year, along with some other countries and also the Bank for International Settlements. And the question is, what could that mean for the dollar? To take us through that, we welcome now Tim Massett. He is former CFTC chairman and research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Tim, great to have you back on. Uh, bring us up to speed on where that central bank digital currency is for China. We've talked about it before, but now we're seeing reports maybe by the end of the year. Is that plausible? Well, they Oh, they've launched it. They're rolling it out. And, you know, they've been at this for 10 years. But I think the more important immediate issue is that China and other countries want to develop international payment systems that don't depend on the dollar. You know, China has a long way to go before the yuan would be a major international currency. But they are working, as you know, with the BIS and with Thailand, UAE and Hong Kong on a platform that would allow those countries to use their respective central bank digital currencies as they develop them to basically avoid having to rely on dollar payment systems. And, you know, today the dollar is the key currency in international commerce. Ninety percent of foreign exchange transactions involve the dollar. That's even if you're converting to other converted uh, currencies. And most international payment transactions in some way or another connect to U.S. banks because they involve multiple steps. You know, when when a corporation in Hong Kong pays someone in the Middle East for oil, they each have a bank. Each of those banks has a correspondent bank. There may be another set of banks involved. And somewhere along the line, a U.S. bank is probably involved because dollars are involved. And that's given us enormous leverage. And we've used that to basically impose economic sanctions as an instrument of foreign policy. So I think the more immediate issue is all these countries who are looking at developing uh, payment, international payment mechanisms that don't depend on the dollar. Those are still a long ways away, but we need to pay attention to that and make sure we're looking at our own technology uh, so that we stay in the game. So, Tim, I can imagine where some countries might say we just as soon not have to go through U.S. banks because of the sanctions that have been used Correct. Uh, so liberally, I might say, by the U.S. government. On the other hand, would there be some countries who would be a little reluctant to have the Central Bank of China know exactly oh, what their sure. transactions were? Absolutely they would. Um, and again, these other countries are a long ways away from creating their own central bank digital currencies. But, you know, the point is that international payments are slow and costly as it is. You know, when you get multiple steps in the transaction and you get several banks involved and they're in different time zones and they have different operating hours and they're all doing these compliance checks, you know, that just creates a lot of cost. So I think there's an interest, you know, the U.S. should have an interest in trying to modernize that anyway, and that can also help maintain the dollar as a as the primary currency of, of international commerce. 
Well, well I'm sure, you, as you know, uh, Tim, I mean, a big part of this right now in terms of the dollar dominance is still is tied to this idea of convertibility as well. I mean, it's all sure. well and good if the Chinese are able to come up with something that's more efficient, but adoption, at least broad adoption, is still going to be, I guess, based on the final currency that people really want. Absolutely it will be. And that's why I say, you know, China is a long ways away from the yuan being, uh, I think, a significant currency in international commerce. But, you know, we still need to pay attention to these developments. Really, this is about the next stage of money, right? We had money in the form of uh, metal coins, and then we had paper notes, and then we have, you know, electronic ledgers at banks. And now we're talking about digital tokens. Hmm. And digital tokens can be an advance because they combine the actual movement of the message information, which today moves separately on SWIFT, for example, with the movement of the value, and they can be programmed. And that's also why a lot of countries are looking at this. So you're right, you know, the US dollar isn't threatened. But I think we do need to think about the tech, our technology so that, you know, we have a seat yeah. at the table as these international systems are being talked about. Well, since you went there, though, I mean, this gets into the whole idea of crypto or at least what the promise of what crypto was yes. supposed to be. I mean, there are a lot of people that would make the argument that maybe the threat isn't going to come from another government and, and its digital currency, but from something private, like some of the cryptocurrencies that have come and some have gone, of course. Sure. I don't think it'll come from Bitcoin. I think, you know, we could see a role for stable coins, meaning crypto tokens whose value is tied to a particular currency. Uh, We could see those develop. And, you know, I support uh, having a good regulatory framework so they can be developed. I'm not sure that they'll be that significant, but I think that's, you know, one way in which we should be supporting uh, the private sector to explore this. And, you know, I, full disclosure, I'm, I'm an advisor to PayPal, which is, which is uh, into this space. But my point is we need, you know, we need a strong regulatory framework so at least the private sector can experiment with this in a way that doesn't create excessive risk. Tim, are we any closer to that strong regulatory framework? Because you and I have been talking about this for a couple of years now, at least. People have sort of said there <laughs> right. has to be some regulation of stablecoin, and yet it isn't there yet. Are we getting any closer? Well, right now we have regulation at the state level, and that's what PayPal fully complied with. There are efforts to create a regulatory framework at the federal level, and the House Financial Services Committee did adopt a bill uh, trying to move this issue forward. I was hoping it would get more Democratic support, and I think there are ways to address the, the Democrats' concerns. They you know, want to see a federal regime that makes sure that insofar as we have state chartering, as we do for banks, that there's still a good set of minimal federal standards. So I'm still hopeful. Um, and I think, you know, all this activity in the space may encourage Congress to focus more on this. Uh, t- Tim, so, as long as we're in the domestic regulatory framework, why don't we talk about the SEC and some sure. sort of crypto ETFs? Because there are several applications in there now. One of them, by the way, involving BlackRock, which is a pretty respected organization last time I checked. Are uh, we going to get some SEC approval of ETFs for uh, cryptocurrencies? Well, we'll have to see. I think there are about nine applications pending. You know, the SEC has been concerned that the underlying market, the cash market for Bitcoin, still does not have a strong regulatory framework. And, you know, I got to agree with them. Uh, That's something else I've called for and and, uh, uh, supported. So I don't know that they're going to approve it yet, but we'll see. Uh, They have approved... um, 
Bitcoin futures ETFs, frankly, because the CFTC approved the Bitcoin futures products. But I think the SEC is still concerned about, you know, the the lack of, of strong uh, regulatory oversight in that cash market. But I am curious. I mean, to a certain extent, it's kind of a catch-22. Shouldn't the CFTC be the one sort of dictating what some of those regulatory guardrails are going to be? Well, the CFTC only has authority over those futures. Um, they don't have that spot market authority. And that's one thing that some of the proposals in Congress would give them. We just do not have today a federal agency with clear authority over the spot market for Bitcoin and Ethereum and other crypto tokens that, unless they're considered securities. And of course, there was some recent activity in that space uh, where the SEC partly won and partly lost the case uh, involving Ripple. So, you know, the law is still evolving, but we need a stronger regulatory framework. I've argued, let's not worry about whether it's a security or a commodity. Let's just create a, a framework that sets the basic standards that we need. Tim, it's always so helpful to have you with us. Thanks so much for your time. That is Tim Massey. He's the former CFTC chairman. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.